Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. I have the privilege of starting off this new series, and this series is called Nehemiah the Rebuilder. The book of Nehemiah picks up where Ezra left off. So we just finished Ezra. It picks up where Ezra leaves off, and the book will cover the leadership of Nehemiah. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to team up with Ezra. He's going to put some reforms into effect. He's a leader. He's a spiritual leader. He's a political leader. And his goal is to rebuild. He will see some success and he will see some setbacks as well. But before we see Nehemiah as a great leader and a man of action, we see Nehemiah as a humble man of God. He's on his knees with a broken heart, totally dependent upon the mercy of the Lord. Before Nehemiah does something great for God, Nehemiah is broken before God. We'll see that in Nehemiah chapter 1. That's what I want us to take away with today. Without a broken heart for God's people, there will be no success with God's people. Without a broken heart for God's people, there will be no success with God's people. That's the message I want you to see today in Nehemiah chapter 1. So, In honor of God's word, if you are able, would you please stand with me as I read Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. This is from the English Standard Version. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Keslev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, the Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our passage breaks down in two parts. Verses 1 through 4 is the man who wept. And verses 5 through 11, the man who prayed. So first, the man who wept. The year is 446 B.C. Nehemiah, he's in Susa. It's in the Persian Empire, which is located in modern-day Iran. Susa is a fortress city. And in the winter, the emperors would go there and stay. And that's where Nehemiah is. He's on the emperor's staff. He's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. While Nehemiah is in Susa, a fellow Israelite named Hanani visits him. And Hanani brings a group of Jews along with him from Judah. So Nehemiah Nehemiah asks Hanani, Well, now that God has brought people back from Babylon to the promised land, how are they doing? What's the news, Hanani? The news that Hanani gives is terrible. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Fire has destroyed the gates. The returned exiles, they're in great trouble And shame. Something terrible has happened. The news Nehemiah received is not the news Nehemiah wanted. He wanted to hear that the people were worshiping God and keeping his commandments. He wanted to hear that all their enemies were gone. He wanted to hear that the city and its walls were strong, and that there was peace in the land. But that's not the news he received. He received terrible news. And it broke his heart. So he sat down and wept. Think of the last time you cried. I mean you cried. You wept like a baby. Why were you crying? You can't forget something like that. When was the last time you cried over God's people? When you hear about persecution, 
do you cry? June 17, 2015, in Charleston, South Carolina, a man entered a Bible study at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church and killed nine people. Did you cry? November 5th, 2017, in Sutherland Springs, Texas, a man entered First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs and killed 26 people. Did you cry? December 25th, 2019, Christmas, ISIS beheaded 11 Christians in Nigeria. Does that make you cry? When you hear about a church's failure, does it break your heart? When a pastor has an affair, when a child is abused, when a church rejects God's teaching on sexuality, does it break your heart? I'll tell you something that breaks my heart. When I hear what happens to teenagers when they graduate, they're raised in the church, and most of them never come back to church. 70% of students stop attending church once they graduate for at least a year, and most of them never come back. I'll tell you something else. Pastors need a broken heart for God's people. They need a burden. I mean, you can have the greatest speaker, the most charismatic personality, strong leader, but if he doesn't have a broken heart for his church, he's in the wrong job. Pastor Steve has a burden for this church, by the way. I've seen him. Lots of us do here. A burden over God's people should be the heart of every Christian who wants to make an impact for Christ. You want to do something great for God? Get ready. God will break your heart. Now, your heart doesn't really start to change if all people are statistics, numbers, maybe a name on a piece of paper. It's when you get to know them personally that your heart starts to change. I mean, this happened to me. You probably know about our daycare that we have, Little Friends. It meets here Monday through Friday in the building next door. When I first came on staff here, I heard about Little Friends. Steve would talk about it, and he would say, you know, let's see what we can do there. Let's see what, we can, what opportunities we have. And it didn't really leave an impression on me. But I started leading a chapel on Wednesday mornings. And I helped out with a camp over Christmas break. And I got to know the teachers. Now I care a whole lot more about little friends. 
I know these kids and their names, and I know some of their situations. I mean, they come from broken homes, some of them. I know about the struggles that teachers go through. I know the stresses of what makes the school run. And this is all because I got more involved. You see, in order for me to get close enough to make an impact for Christ, I had to get close enough for God to break my heart. Are you close enough to people to make an impact for Christ? Are you close enough for God to break your heart? Nehemiah, he's weeping over Jerusalem. Who does that sound like to you? Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Jesus, he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Triumphal entry. And it says this. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. By the time Christ comes, Jerusalem is still not right with God. Rejects the Messiah, and this breaks Christ's heart. Now, when you find yourself broken over God's people, what do you do next? Well, you pray. And that's what Nehemiah does in verses 5 through 11. His heart is broken for his people. He sees their pain. He sees their sin, and so he prays. There are nine prayers in the book of Nehemiah, and this is the first, and it's a prayer of confession. Verses 5 and 6 serve as an introduction. 7 through 10 are the details of the confession, and verse 11 is Nehemiah's request to God. So look with me at verse 5. He says, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah's God is great and awesome. He's the God of heaven. He's on the throne and he's Yahweh and that's the God Nehemiah prays to. He uses two important words in verse 5. I want to unpack them real quick. The word covenant and steadfast love. So first, covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two parties. Think of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's a covenant. You swear an oath that you will never leave each other nor forsake each other as long as you both shall live. You're faithful to your covenant vows. In the Bible, God makes covenants with people. It's not the other way around. It's not people just say, hey, God, let's make a covenant. No, God takes the initiative to make a covenant with people. So God swears an oath that he will uphold 
the covenant and bless the people, and the people swear an oath to love and obey God. Well, we know from Nehemiah's prayer, the covenant he's thinking about is the one that Israel and God made on Mount Sinai through Moses. Moses is the mediator of the covenant. We call that covenant the Torah, the law, or the old covenant. Whoever breaks the old covenant is cursed. Nehemiah emphasizes that God never breaks his covenant. The people are the ones who broke it. So that's covenant. Steadfast love. Nehemiah uses an important word for love. The ESV translates it steadfast love. You may have a translation that says loving kindness or just mercy or just love. It's one word in Hebrew. It's chesed. And it's a special kind of love. Okay? It conveys the idea of loyalty, steadfastness. It has to be connected to the idea of a covenant. It's the love between the two parties in a covenant. So, again, much like a husband loves his wife. I'm married. God has commanded me, like he commanded everyone, to love everybody. So I love everyone. I love all women. But my wife, I love her specially, uniquely, differently. I'm in a covenant with my wife. I'm not in a covenant with everyone else. The same is with God and his people. He loves everyone. He created everyone. God has loved the world. He loves his people uniquely, specially. If you are a child of God, you have that special love of God upon you. So now with covenant and steadfast love in mind, let's look at the confession. Verse 6, Nehemiah, what is he doing? He's pleading with God. He's pleading with God to hear him. And he, he confesses the sins of Israel, and he includes himself in the prayer. He says, we have sinned. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah's broken heart is not just for the sins of others. It's for his own sins as well. And he gets more specific in verse 7. He talks about the God and covenant and Moses. So we know that's the Mosaic covenant. In verses 8 and 9, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, he says. Returning and repenting, it's the same thing. To return to God is to repent. God promised his exiles, if they repent, he will bring them back and make his name dwell with them once again, if they repent. Well, the people are back in Jerusalem, right? Ezra's there with them. The exile is over. So why does Nehemiah think 
that they still need to repent. Although they have returned physically from exile, they have not returned spiritually from exile. And it's one thing to get the people out of Babylon. To get Babylon out of the people, that's another matter. The people have not returned to the Lord with all their hearts, and that's why they are experiencing trouble and shame. And here's the issue, okay? Without perfect obedience to the covenant, the people will not receive the blessings. They will remain cursed and in spiritual exile forever. But no one is capable of keeping the covenant. This is true for us. No one can obey God perfectly. I can't do it. You can't do it. We all stand condemned, guilty before the judge of the living and the dead. We are under a curse and in spiritual exile and heading to eternal destruction. And there's nothing you can do about it. Do you feel helpless? Does your sin weigh you down so much that you feel helpless? What can be done? That's the question you should be asking. What can be done? Romans 8. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. God condemned our sin in the flesh of his Son. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Christ took upon himself the curse meant for us so that we could receive God's blessing. How does that work? Well, God has made a new covenant between himself and his son. And this new covenant was created through Jesus' death. Jesus even says so in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, the night that Jesus is betrayed, he's leading his disciples to the Last Supper, and he's explaining to them what the elements mean. He takes the cup, and he, likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore he, meaning Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The new covenant depends on the faithfulness of God the Father, which no one questions, and the faithfulness of His Son. It does not depend on you. Because no one could be faithful and obedient and uphold it. Only the Son of God could. No one could be faithful to the covenant, so God had to do it Himself through Jesus. When you trust in Jesus, His blood removes your sins, and you are no longer under a curse, and you are no longer in spiritual exile. You receive all the blessings in the covenant as if you obeyed perfectly. You did not live perfectly. You cannot live perfectly, but Jesus did. So God considers you, because of your faith, righteous and holy and perfect like he considers his son Jesus. That's called the great exchange. When you trust your life to Jesus, the curses meant for you fall on Jesus, and the blessings that come through Jesus fall on you. All you get are blessings because of Christ. Similar to marriage. Let's say that there is a a woman who is poor, and she has a lot of debt. And she marries a billionaire. What happens? All of a sudden, their bank accounts merge. All her debts are paid, and now her worthless, empty bank account is full of billions of dollars. That's what happens when you become a Christian and give your life to Jesus. You have a lot of debt and no money to pay for it. And when you get married, Christ's bank account merges with yours, and now you're rich. Not because of anything you've done, but because of your relationship with Jesus. It's important to understand covenant, isn't it? We are members of the new covenant, and that's how we can worship God better. Okay, we come to the end of his prayer. What does he do in verse 11? He, he asks a request from God. He asks God to move the heart of Artaxerxes. He asks God to move Artaxerxes in such a way that Artaxerxes does exactly what Nehemiah wants. It's a pretty bold prayer. Nehemiah is totally dependent on the power of God. He has a plan. He sees the issue, what's going on with Israel. He has a plan how to fix it. But he knows nothing can succeed unless God starts changing hearts, beginning with King Artaxerxes. Nothing can happen unless the power of God changes people's hearts. You believe that? Nothing can happen. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. 
Not a little something. Nothing. God changed your heart. He might be changing it right now. He changed my heart. I was six years old, and he's continually changing it. If you believe that, and I know you do, we're going to pray and ask God to change hearts. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.